is up everybody welcome back to whatever with jason soto the comedy podcast that doesn't take itself that seriously even though we are talking about a very serious topic today of sorts uh i'm your host jason soto uh welcome back we uh i took a few weeks off to celebrate thanksgiving and i uh, just got out of jail from my black friday uh arrest uh they were not gonna take that goddamn xbox out of my hands so i just got back so uh some programming notes uh there's only going to be two more episodes this year and then i'm taking the rest of the year off uh but i will be back uh at the uh beginning of january with some brand new episodes and they should be pretty weekly from there on in so look forward to that uh so for today's episode uh, i'm joined by a very special guest uh she's been a friend of mine for ah god fuck like 20 years now at this point almost it feels like it yeah, it feels like it. Uh, <laughs> in a good way. Um, my friend Mary. What's up, Mary? How you doing? What's up? So, uh, we met, like, back before social media was a thing. Yeah, it was like live journal, right? <laughs> it was a live journal, yeah. And I think... And I think we met through the uh, MST3K group, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, because I, if I... Did you have a... Tom Servo was your profile picture? I might have. Like, I'm pretty sure I did. Yeah, that might have been why I was like, oh, there's another Misty. Because it was definitely on my channel. Yeah, yeah. Last channel was like... I mean, that was way before Facebook or anything like that. Yeah, Facebook was like that whole thing that you see in the social network. It was just like for college douches and (laughs) uh, picking up women. And uh, MySpace was kind of in its prime at this point. But yeah, we met on LiveJournal. And um, yeah, we just became friends. And we talked through... Here's here's how old we are. We talked through AOL Instant Messenger, which is not not even a thing anymore. (laughs) I still have my screen name listed on my Facebook page. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and that, oh, man, I remember, oh, man, yeah, we used to talk, like, all the time on that thing. Um, yeah, and then... from music to movies, agree sometimes, but then disagree. Yeah, we, so, we're the rare friendship where we disagree on a lot of things more than we agree on things, but we get along. Yeah, you know, I kind of, like hearing the other side of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's the complete opposite of what I feel. So it's interesting to to discuss it with somebody who feels completely differently than you do. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not, you know, I do get passionate about stuff, but I'm not the type who's like, well, you don't agree with me, fuck you, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm i like, yeah. okay, that's that's fine, you know, you, know, that's, you, don't, you don't like certain things, that's all good, you know, it's still there for me to enjoy so i don't care you know it's fine it's a novel idea but <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah so we've known each other for a very long while but uh i've never had mary on a podcast i've ever done um first podcast i've ever i've never done this before <laughs> oh i'm popping your cherry oh oh awesome i want to oh, mark that on the calendar popped mary's cherry enter there that has been that is now forever embedded into computer stone 
Into the computer cannon. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so welcome to podcasting. Welcome to my show. Um, today's episode, um, I wanted to do this type of episode because uh, there's literally 10,000 podcasts about this subject, and I want it to be one of them. Um, so I'm trying to break out into the podcasting world and I'm trying to do stuff that's popular and makes people, you know, grab, you know, I'm trying to grab their attention. And right now we seem to be in this like renaissance age of true crime podcasts. There's like, you cannot throw a stone and not hit a true crime podcast. Like, it's funny because I'm so interested in true crime. I always have been, but I've never... I wasn't even really aware it was a thing until, like, this year, seeing it, and it's like, oh, podcast. It's like, I didn't even know. <laughs> I have a lot to, you know, binge, I guess. So, I, I was curious to exactly how many true crime podcasts there are, and Google is not telling me anything. Like, it just gives me a list of some, but I can't find a definitive list of all the true crime podcasts that are out there. Um... I did find on a website, and this will tell you how many there are, they have a list of 34 best true crime podcasts of 2019. 34! I've never seen anything have 34 of anything, like ever. So there's that many true crime podcasts out there that they, they felt the need to have 34. And 34 is a kind of a weird number. Like, why not make it 35? Why not do 40? Like, why did they end on 34? That's kind of strange on its on its own. Um, but I think we're in agreement that this all started because of Serial. Have you ever heard Serial? No. Sounds like something I'd like, though. <laughs> okay, so this started... Oh, my God. How long ago was this? This was 2000... Oh, my God. 16, maybe? 15? 16? Um, it's through NPR... And they started the show called Serial, and the whole idea of it was they were going to take one subject and week by week continue the story of this subject. And the first subject they had was uh, the murder of this girl in Baltimore, whose name I can't remember right now. Um, uh, season one. And it just told like the story of uh, this girl. She got killed in 1999. Uh, Heyman Lee, that's her name. And um, they they strongly suspect that her boyfriend named uh, Adnan Syed uh, did it. And the whole season one of Serial was about this dude and this girl's murder. And it was a very fascinating episode because like each episode was more and more to the story about like it started with like the day she went missing, then she got her body was found, and then what he was doing, and then his alibi, and then like the host of the podcast went to Baltimore and was like, okay, we're gonna drive the you know the route the guy said he did and see if it takes this many minutes to do whatever. And they went to the locations that the story had. There was like a Best Buy involved. They went to the Best Buy because it was a Best Buy parking lot. And anyway, it's a very fascinating season. I've not heard of that one before. Really, it was huge. It was like giant, and everyone went crazy, right? And so that was season one. So we're like, oh, what's season two going to be about? Is it a follow-up? Is it going to be another true crime podcast? What are they going to do? No, they just do completely something completely different, 
and they follow the story of that the the guy i don't know if you remember this uh some years ago there was a soldier who was stationed out in like saudi arabia or baghdad or somewhere and he left his post and he ended up getting captured by the taliban and was held captive oh, by the taliban for like five years you remember that story no I don't know. <laughs> it was in the news. I don't know. So okay, well, so they did an episode on that, and it was just about his story, which yeah, I, I will admit it was fascinating, but it was not a true crime thing. It was just a guy who got captured by the Taliban. He's telling a story about being captured by the Taliban, right. but it was disappointing because it was not a true crime thing. So I feel like, it's just my personal theory, that other people felt disappointed. And so they just wanted to start their own true crime podcast. And now we're in this boom of, like, everybody. <laughs> There's a plethora of true crime podcasts. Yeah, seriously. And it's, like, it's a mixture of, like, just a general, you know, each episode's a different case, like My Favorite Murder, or there's some that are about a specific crime. Um, like, I was looking at that 34 Best True Crime Podcast, and most of them are about, like, a specific thing. Um, you know, there's one about, actually, there's one that takes place in Indiana I kind of know about. Um, there's one that's about just criminal cases, about this girl named Amy. Is it the Delphi Girls? No, I don't, uh, no, this is, it's called the Burger Chef Murders, and I kind of, when I moved to Indianapolis, I kind of remember hearing the story about that, because they celebrate, in, you know, celebrate in quotes, the anniversary of that happening, because it happened a long ass time ago, um, but I remember like in the news, like the anniversary, like the 30 anniversary of 30 year anniversary of it, They're like 30 years ago, these uh, employees at this uh, Burger Chef restaurant went missing, and then they were found dead uh, in the woods 20 miles away, and we don't know what happened to them. So there's a whole podcast about that, and it's just crazy how many true crime podcasts there are, and most of them, oddly enough, are funny. <laughs> like they, they take like a humor humoristic look at it. Yeah, there's some of, um, a couple of channels on YouTube that are like that. Which... Channel that chapter is, does a lot of humor on it. Yeah. Which leads me to my warning. Oh, you can't just be completely depressing all the time. Exactly. <laughs> That's how I look at it. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to throw this out there. Um, that we're going to be talking about some true crime cases today, me and Mary, and, uh, we're going to kind of do a humoristic look at it. Now... I don't plan on, and I'm sure Mary isn't going to plan on, like, making fun of anything super serious. Like, we're not going to make fun of the victims no. or anything like that. Uh, I might give some shit to my, my killer in my story. I might give him some shit. But when you hear what happened to him, you're not going to care. Uh, but, um, but yeah, we're, I'm going to, you know, we're going to approach this with humor and lightheartedness, but it's going to be a very serious topic. These are very serious things that happen that involves people being murdered and we don't know what happened well it, in my case we know what happened but um yeah so just fyi warning if you find that offensive go check out something else yeah, that's what we're doing very disturbing content yeah so just fyi on that so uh all right so i think that's about it for the intro oh no actually i did want to ask you one thing mary um wh uh, what was like your first like intro into the whole true crime thing like what got you into this um, well, the first thing that I can really remember, um, was when I was in about first grade, I remember my mother 
telling me, she said, Mary, there's a guy in Milwaukee that's been eating people. <laughs> and I was just like, what? She was talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. And she was a Drew Crew True Crime fan herself. So we always talked about it growing up. But that was the first time I remember being like, what? And it kind of sparked something in me. And then, of course, the other one that was really big was the John Bonet one. When that happened, it just kind of, I don't know, gripped me. <laughs> it's just, okay. You know, I remember seeing it in the newspaper before it was a big story, just her picture there. And it was a small story, you know, it was just yeah. disturbed by it. And it just, you know, ever since then, my mom always talked about, you know, she was always watching those serial killer shows. She was always telling me about, you know, all different serial killers. Like BTK, she was the one who uh. sparked my fascination in that case. So, yeah, it had a lot to do with my mother. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't remember exact... See, I think to me, because I watch horror movies, I always look at true crime as, like, real-life horror stuff. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's, like, serial killers, and people get murdered, and weird fucked-up shit just happens to these people. And it's, like, you know, a, a, you know, this is real-life horror, and it's fascinating, and there's just something oddly, you know, uh, morbidly... Morbidly fascinating about it, and I, I don't know what it is. Because it, people who don't really like true crime kind of think you're weird for being interested in it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. One of the big things with me, with, especially with uh, serial killers, is just the abnormal psychology of it and how crazy they are. Like, that's fascinating. It's just like a different type of person that just, you know, that's just very, I don't know, it's just interesting. <laughs> Just that people can do that, and the things that they think, and all their delusions, and, you know, just all the different ways that they come up with, you know, fucking with people. It's just... Uh Yeah, and it's, um... So, you know, I don't remember exactly, like, my first interest, but I do remember when Jeffrey Dahmer broke, like, I was watching TV, like, that evening, and it was like, breaking news, a bunch of dead bodies were found in this apartment, and this guy was eating them. Um, you were like older than me, so yeah, I was uh, it was ninety one, so I was eleven. Um, oh yeah, I was like seven, maybe I don't know. No, yeah, yeah, I was like I was like eleven when like eleven or twelve when that happened, and uh, I remember vividly like that whole tra- like events of happening. Like he got caught, he went on tra- trial, he went on all the news shows and talked about what happened. He was on like twenty twenty or whatever that was. Yeah, um, it was also. Interesting too because it was right around the same time that Silence of the Bo- the Lambs was a big yes movie. yes yeah and that and the so tied into the pop culture of the day. that was so weird when that happened <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I remember when Jeffrey Dahmer got killed in prison I remember hearing about that like I don't he, remember that. yeah it was breaking news he got beat the fuck up in prison and got killed yeah. It was like a few years later. It was like a few years later. Beat him to death with a weight uh, bar. Something like that, yeah. And I remember, like, breaking news. Jeffrey Dahmer got murdered in prison. And I'm like, oh, holy fuck. Did he get eaten? Like, what? <laughs> like what's going to happen? Is he going to serve for lunch at the prison? Like, that's the only thing I can think of. Like, you might as well, right? <laughs> it's probably a good thing I would run a prison. <laughs> We're going to... What was the first horror movie that really started, like freaked you out? Um, that is torn between Nightmare on Elm Street and The Exorcist. I think those are tied for for that. Um, At an early age. Yeah, I watched. See, I can't remember which I watched first. I feel like I watched Nightmare on Elm Street first, 
And then I think the next one that freaked me out was The Exorcist. And because, like, The Exorcist, I watched when I wasn't supposed to. Like, my mom... (laughs) My mom, like, was pretty cool with letting me watch whatever when I was a kid. Like, she, like, knew I can handle stuff. But she did not want me to watch The Exorcist because she's like, I think that's a little too much. And so my rebellious nature in me, I'm like, well, well, I didn't didn't cuss at the time. I was like, well, fuck that. I'm going to watch this. And so, like, when my mom was at home, which was kind of often because she worked in the afternoon, and evenings I put it in and yeah it fucking freaked me out <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah the, the, so I don't know something about the whole connection about horror movies and true crime just got me fascinating and you know I lived just outside of Chicago so there was constant like murder happening around yeah, me yeah. so um I don't want to derail too much but there was a really fucked up murder case that happened when I was a kid at a uh, do you, I don't know if you have these where you live, but do you, you know where Brown's Chicken is? No. Okay, either. yeah, it might, I don't know, it might be a local thing. Um, but it's kind of just like a chicken, fast food chicken restaurant. Um, kind of, kind of similar to, uh, Los Pols, uh, Hermanos and, uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, right. <laughs> um, well, anyway, um, a bunch of people that worked there, like four or five of them, uh, got murdered. And while they were closing up the restaurant and then their bodies were put like in the freezer and they were found like the next day when the store opened and nobody know who did it. And to this day, the murder is like not been caught. And like almost every year I see like enough like, you know, it's been 25 years and no one's caught the guy yet. And this is what happened. They just murder the people inside. I don't. I don't have the full details in front of me, but it was like they were, they were closing this restaurant. Somebody came in to presumably rob them. Um, I think they might have killed one person, had the other person open the safe, and then like locked them in the freezer. I think some froze to death, some were killed. I don't remember the exact details. Oh God. Yeah, it was fucked up, and it was news when like I was a kid. I remember. They would not shut up about that for, like, weeks. Like, they were literally, here's a sketch of, like, what the guy might have been, you know, might have looked like. And here's all the, you know, the victims and their names and their families. And we're going to talk to the dad. And, like, it was a thing for, like, weeks on end. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, again, it's been kind of my, embedded in my DNA, I guess. (laughs) Like, my whole life I've been fascinated by that. Uh, all right, so yeah, enough jibber jabber. Let's go ahead and get to our cases. Uh, so, Mary, I'm gonna let you go first. Uh, what is your true crime thing you want to talk about today? Uh, the JonBenet Ramsey case. Ah, yes, I remember this happening in real time too. Yes, it's the one I know the most about, um, and it's just maddening to me. It's you know you can go over it in your head over and over again, and no matter what fear you come up with, there's going to be a million things that contradict it. It's just, you know, I think it's like the most frustrating mystery in, you know, recent years, I suppose. Yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't make any sense, no matter how you look at it, and it's just terrible. And to know that there was so much corruption around it with the police and with the lawyers, the police completely botched the case. Mm. It, it's just a mess all around, really. So let's assume that no one knows who John Bonnet Ramsey is. Let's go ahead and get into the beginnings of this. Okay. So you want to just yeah, just to be like who she, who she was and uh, then what led up to the events of her being murdered. Yeah. Oh, she was a she was born on August 6, nineteen ninety, and uh, 
she grew up in the pageant circuit. Her parents are rich. Her father owned a computer company that did really well. He was a multi-millionaire. Her mother was a former Miss Virginia, Miss West Virginia. Uh-huh. She grew up pretty well. And uh, she was always winning the pageants herself. Um, and then suddenly she was murdered on Christmas in 1996. Mm-hmm. Found in the basement of her own home. <clears throat> and then... Uh... The parents were out of the house at the time, right? No, they were all inside the house. Oh, they were all home. Oh, okay. I thought they were at a party or something. Maybe they I had gone to a party earlier that night. That's where really the case kind of starts. Um, it was on Christmas afternoon that they went to the party at the Whites' house. They were the friends of theirs. Uh-huh. And then they returned home from the Whites, according to the Ramseys. Can't believe anything they say, but <laughs> they came home from the Whites. John Bonet was fast asleep. They brought her upstairs, put her to bed. They went to bed. And then the next morning, Patsy woke up about 5 o'clock. They were getting ready to go on a trip to their house in Michigan. So they mm. had to be up early. And she supposedly got up early, walked down the basement. I mean, I'm sorry, the spiral staircase. Said that she found a three-page ransom note oh. on the spiral staircase that said, we have your daughter demanding an odd amount of money. It was three pages. And hmm. so she supposedly, woke up John. He read the ransom note, and then she made a 911 call at 5.52 a.m., and then the police showed up. And they were there all day and uh, treating it as a missing, you know, kidnapping case because right. the ransom note said, we have your daughter. <clears throat> and uh, around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, John Ramsey made a beeline to the basement and brought her body up from the basement. Wait, okay, wait, 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 back up. So, the whole day, there's cops in the house, and they think it's a kidnapping case, which I can understand that if they're going off the note. Cops and friends of this. Patsy called 911, but then she also called all of her friends and told them to come over. So they had, like, a bunch of people in that house. And in an active crime scene, the friends, they had called victims advocates. There were a bunch of police. Huh. And they that she had been kidnapped by... A small foreign faction. That's what the note said. And um, then, and then, just suddenly, out of the blue, the dad just ran to the basement. Well, the police chief that was there. I'm sorry, the police officer Linda Arndt. She was there, and she told John and Fleet White, his friend, the person they had been at the house before, um, to search the house from top to bottom. Oh, okay. And John made a beeline to the basement, which is directly opposite of what she told him to do. Oh. And he went down there, supposedly. And the, this basement was a labyrinth. I mean, this was a humongous house, like huge. And the basement is completely confusing. I've seen all the <laughs> videos and the photos of it. It's room after room after room. And she was actually in a room called the wine cellar. It was a little concrete uh, back room. There wasn't okay. any wine down there. But mm. uh, he made a, for some reason, found her in there right away. That room turned on the light, and she was there. She was wrapped in a blanket. She had duct tape on her mouth, and her uh, wrists were tied, and she had a ligature around her neck. Oh. And he brought her upstairs and placed her in front of the Christmas tree. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
that's when they discovered that it wasn't actually a kidnapping. I mean, she was in her own house. So the Ramses were just already planning for the made-for-TV movie. It's like, we're going to yeah. set the scene up. We're going to put the body right in front of the Christmas tree, and the camera's going to pan out, and there's going to be sad music. Patsy was hysterical. She started crying for Jesus to raise her daughter like he raised Lazarus <laughs> from the dead. And oh, my God. <laughs> yep. And she supposedly didn't know about this, but I don't believe that at all. I mean, er, they're blatantly guilty. I mean, oh my god! The first thing they did was lawyer up, which isn't really that odd. I mean, it's important to lawyer up, but yeah. they refused to talk to the police. Refused. Yeah. Well, okay. So I don't know one way or another. Obviously, we all don't know what happened. We all have our theories, and I know you're going to have a theory, and you're about to say it in a minute, but I kind of conceive their point of one to lawyer up only because they're the parents, and the body was found in their house. So, like, it's almost like, you know, if your husband or wife gets murdered, the suspicion is going to get cast onto you immediately. Like, they're going to say you have something to do with it. Exactly. And so, you have to, like, really kind of cover all your bases. Um, it's not, people take them lawyering up as, oh my god, they, they definitely did it because of that. I mean, I think they did it, but I don't think that lawyering up is any indication of that. I think that they were smart to do that. Anybody would do that. Yeah, I think so too. But it's how they used their lawyers later on, which is the problem. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so now, what are all the possible theories about who possibly could have done it? <clears throat> okay, so the least likely, in my opinion judging by facts in this case, is that there's indeed a small foreign faction that kidnapped John Bonet in the middle of her house in the middle of the night, didn't make any noise, and for some reason killed her in the house, left her body there, never collected the ransom money, never called back, and that was it. I, I don't know how you could believe that. Okay. Let's... Ex- let's oh, oh, sorry. Uh, let's expound on that just for a second. So, just play devil's advocate. Just, just play devil's advocate. This, this, I don't necessarily believe this, but let's just say for a second that actually happened. Somebody broke into the house, okay. broke into the house, started to kidnap her, wrote the note, and then something went terribly wrong, and she got killed accidentally. The kidnapper or kidnappers freaked out, didn't know what to do, hit her body in the basement, and then just left. Absolutely, yeah. Or some people think that they that she they use a stun gun on her because she has hmm. odd marks on her neck and her back that uh. explain how they got there. But if you use a stun gun on somebody, even if you do this on a three hundred pound man, they will scream and jump. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So a six year old that doesn't make any sense. But no. um, yeah, so they believe that they probably got in through the basement window. Um, okay. Luke Smith, who is a detective on this case was a huge intruder theorist and he did everything in his power to prove that and his method of doing that was to prove that they had gotten in through the basement uh kidnapped her from her bed brought her down into the basement sexually assaulted her then strangled her and left oh is there evidence that she was sexually assaulted oh yeah she was sexually assaulted um, oh really? the uh, ligature that was around her neck was tied at the end um, kind of like a leash, if you can picture that. Okay. Uh, was tied at the end with a broken paintbrush that had come from Patsy's paint tote Ooh. in the basement. And uh, it was broken half, and part of that paintbrush, there were shards of that paintbrush that were found inside of her. So she was sexually assaulted with 
Holy shit. The same paintbrush that was used in the ligature device. Huh. And it also... I mean, this is very disturbing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, she had also shown uh, evidence of prior sexual abuse. Oh, wow, really? I did, yeah. Now, see, that I didn't know. I really didn't know that. Yeah, that that's crazy. Some time. Um, wow. And and then, of course, the, the shards. She also had a little bit of blood on her underwear. Mm. And on her. There, there was evidence that she had been wiped down. Um, oh, okay. Whether or not what it was, God knows what they wiped off of her. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna leave that one alone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, she was sexually assaulted with that, that same paintbrush. Wow, was, that that's fu- uh, wow. You know, I, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm vague. I, I know the case. I've heard the theories and stuff, but I didn't know that part. Like, I didn't know the whole thing with the paintbrush and. You know, she was yeah. sexually yeah. assaulted in the past. Like, I thought she was... I, I kind of vaguely remember them saying that she was sexually assaulted right before she died. But I didn't know it was, like, an ongoing thing. That's crazy. She was definitely sexually assaulted either right before or after she died. Because, um, mm. I mean, like I said, it was the same uh, paintbrush that was used to strangle her. But she, yeah, that she also had scarring and other things like that that indicated prior sexual abuse. Okay. Wow. Um, all right. So, uh, what are some other theories? I think I interrupted your train of thought on that. Sorry. So there's, um, so there's the intruder theory, and then there's the um, the Patsy theory, which a lot of people I remember when it first broke. This was the part. This was what my mother believed initially. Okay. Um, and a lot of people still do. I kind of am on the fence about this, to be honest. Um, there's the Patsy theory is that. Well, John Bonet had uh, bedwetting problems, like ongoing bedwetting problems, mm. uh, which is also a sign of children wet their bed when they're being sexually abused. So, okay. Um, but she had really bad wet bedwetting problems at the age of six. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, there was a bag of pull-up diapers that was hanging out of a cabinet right outside her bedroom, and um, she had also there was urine stains on the basement floor. So. The, the theory with Patsy is that John Bonet had another bedwetting accident in the middle of the night, which would explain the time of her death. Patsy was frazzled from the Christmas party before. She was probably drunk. She was probably on pills. And she just lashed out, maybe pushed John Bonet, hit her head against the sink or the tub or whatever it was, and then panicked and did all the covering up herself, including uh. the ransom note, because the ransom note is in her handwriting. Um, oh, really? Absolutely. I mean, they have looked at the ransom note so many times that the only person that was never eliminated as a possible writer of the note was Patsy. And <laughs> all of her family photographs and letters that she wrote prior to the murder, she has a very distinctive way of writing her A's. They're manuscript A's, A's, which a lot of people don't use, and they're all over it. It's the same handwriting. Hmm. Um, so, that's part of, you know, any Ramsey did it theory that you have, Patsy definitely wrote the ransom note. And then she called 911. Um, and uh, on the 911 call, at the end, there's a few seconds that she uh, thought she had hung up, but she didn't. And you can hear very faintly three different voices. One being Patsy, saying, help me Jesus, help me Jesus. Then you can hear John say, we're not speaking to you. And then a voice that sounds like Burke say, what did you find? So that would, 
that whole 911 call, I mean, that proves that they were not only lying about where they all were, but, you know. <laughs> wow. That's that's crazy. Um, yes. The Patsy thing, I mean, she was also pretty weird. Like, she was, <laughs> you know, a stage mom. Like, crazy stage mom. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 get, I got that feeling. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, and she, there's a way she lies. And she's just, you know, she denies. She, they say, oh, what about the sexual assault? And she said, we, there was no sexual assault. We, we were told that there wasn't. Even though there was. It's concrete. I mean, it's proof. She denies everything, and she's a liar. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, whether or not you believe she did it, I mean, it's kind of like my second theory, but who knows? <laughs> okay. Now, is there a theory that the brother might have did it? Yeah, that's the one that I actually think is the most likely. Um, the theory is because he had behavioral issues, like weird... Um, he... Patsy had cancer, um, mm. and when he was younger, she was going through chemotherapy treatment, and his response to that was he would smear shit on the walls and kind of shit around the house. And he kept doing shit like that. He would do that in John Bonet's room. Oh, wow. He had kind of weird scatological problems like that, um, and he also had, there was an incident a year before her death where she was actually taken to the hospital because Burke hit her in the face with a golf club. Oh, shit. And uh, she was also hit in the head when her, you know, the, the first wound that she sustained was a, head, a massive head injury. Um, so the theory with Burke is that he was a sexually aggressive child, uh, really fucked up in the head. Oh, a lot wow. of kids think he was nine years old and that, you know, a nine-year-old can't do that. There are a lot of cases of kids being really fucked up. Oh, yeah. And especially to the siblings. Um, so the theory with Burke, and also uh, I completely forgot to mention the pineapple evidence, but um, the theory with Burke, well, she had, JonBenet had pineapple in her stomach when she died, the autopsy showed. Okay. At the crime scene, there was a bowl pineapple and milk with a serving spoon in it and a glass with a tea bag in it at Burke's spot on the dining room table where he normally sat. Hmm. With Burke's fingerprints on the bowl and Patsy's fingerprints on the bowl. So at some point, JonBenet had to ingest that pineapple. They say that she never did. They say, oh, we never fed her pineapple. She was asleep. But the pineapple in her stomach proves that she was awake at one point and ingested the pineapple. Hmm. So the theory with that is that took Burke's pineapple, or they ate pineapple together after they came home from the party from the white. Then they might have gone downstairs in the basement, because that's where Patsy kept all the Christmas presents. And they were having another Christmas party the next day, so there were a lot of wrapped Christmas presents down there. So they mm -hmm. might have gone down there to peek at the Christmas presents with the flashlight, and he maybe tried to sexually assault her again. Maybe this had been an ongoing thing, which would explain the prior assault. And yeah. It went wrong. He hit her in the head. She didn't get up. And then eventually he strangled her. Hmm. I don't know why you would... I mean, the strangulation is like the most frustrating part because it's so overkill. Yeah. You hit somebody in the head and they're out. Why would you feel the need to strangle them like an hour later while they're unconscious on the floor? So who knows? I mean, she... 
she was strangled in the same spot where the paintbrush was, and then she was dragged into uh, the the wine cellar. So the theory is that maybe Burke did that. Patsy came down, or he woke her up. She was in the same clothes that she had worn the night before when the cops showed up the next day. So she huh. hadn't gone to bed. Oh. Rich woman who gave a lot of shit about appearance. She wouldn't do that. I mean, her family and friends say she'd never wear the same outfit twice. You know, uh, but yeah, there she was and wearing the same clothes. So that's the Burke theory. I mean, that's the thing that I think is the most likely. Okay. Because it, 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 like any kind of big question that you have about the case, you can kind of answer it with something to do with the Burke theory. Okay. Also, I feel like they, they, in one of the interviews, John Ramsey says, you, um, your love for your spouse is conditional, but your love for your child is unconditional. And I feel like the only person or person that the Ramsey would ever lie for and do that for would be their son. That was he, he would be their only remaining child. And if they said, you know, but he did it, he would get taken away from them. And they would be completely, they have no kids. Yeah. So I, I kind of think that they, they were just trying to be protective parents and put him out of the spotlight. They didn't allow cops to talk to him. Huh. Um, you listen, there's clips on YouTube and transcripts online. If you look at his at Burke's interviews with police and psychologists, he is a very creepy kid. <laughs> very creepy. And he says really inappropriate things. He has no emotion. He's laughing the whole time. Same thing with his appearance on Dr. Phil. He is a freak. <laughs> wow. So I definitely think it was Burke. The other theory would be Patsy. But Patsy was involved in any either theory you want to go with so uh so one of the other things i remember about this case uh this all came back to light uh, in like the mid 2000s when this guy named john mark carr said he did it <laughs> every, so every couple of years there's one of them <laughs> but this was like the the most famous one i think because this went through this whole thing like um like what are your thoughts about that and you know like like what was up with that i fed john benet pineapple on the night he died i remember him saying that mm. he's a freak i mean that guy was like what he lived in like thailand or something and had like you know he's like a pedophile that lived in thailand there is no way every he, he i think they proved that he wasn't even in the country um when that happened mm. so he's just a freak i mean there's John Mark Carr is one of many. I mean, you look up, you know, uh, John Benet, any news story that's recent is going to be some creepy pedophile admitting that he did it, even though he didn't. I think the John Mark Carr thing was a big deal because the case had been so quiet for a while, and it also happened at the, around the same time as Patsy's death, I believe. So it's just pretty, like, renewed interest in the case, but he definitely didn't do it. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, it was proven he didn't do it. Because um, I remember, like, for a while there, everyone thought he might have had something to do with it, but then they dismissed him when he just kept talking about stuff that everybody knew. Yeah, like, who doesn't... I mean, if you look at the case, he's all like, I remember JonBenet, I talked with her, and I fed her pineapple on the night she... I think it's, like, kind of, like... If you, like, take two seconds to look in the case, you can just come up with stuff like that, like, oh, the pineapple. Yep, everyone knows about the pineapple detail, but... That doesn't make any sense. So you said he yeah. ate pineapple with her at the party. Even though, how does that explain the pineapple at her house? And the yeah. Like, he's full of shit. 
Uh, I agree. Um, all right, is there any other like odds and ends you want to talk about this about this case? No, I think I covered it pretty well. So yeah, as of now, it's still unsolved. Like no one has been arrested for the murder. Notice how their John Ramsey and Burke aren't actively trying to solve this case anymore. Like they just kind of faded into obscurity. John Ramsey remarried. You think if somebody murdered your daughter, you would be looking everywhere? But now they just they just let it go. Yeah, the the wife died. Uh, Patsy died. Yeah. Um, some time ago. Uh, yeah, I remember the, the the dad got remarried. Uh, the brother. The, I just kind of looked him up a little bit here. Apparently, he was in a lawsuit with CBS, and apparently, yes. he won. The CBS documentary is actually the thing that made me um to- totally convinced me the first day. You should see it. It's good. Okay. Um, but yeah, he sued that uh, with his lawyer Lynn Wood. It was a total mm. bastard. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look him up. He's bad. But, um, yeah. Yeah. That's, and he did an interview with Dr. Phil uh, a couple of years ago, too. That is extremely creepy. I suggest if you're interested in just check it out. It's, it's worth a watch. Okay. All right. That was all. All does a lot of stuff that I didn't know about, and it sounds like you really are interested in this case. So, um, you know, more develops, I guess. Uh, but yeah, that was awesome. That was a yeah. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know about. Some stuff, you know, was common knowledge, but other stuff I really didn't know. A couple of those things. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, so thank you for uh, sharing it with us. If you like intelligent and smart movie discussion, faces a zombie movie. <laughs> How did he write a book if he doesn't have an arm? Or want to hear the latest news on your favorite actor? Talk some Julianne Moore, I guess. <laughs> Whales have more films than Zoe Montana. And check out The Lambcast, where no question is too risque. Rachel, do you have a mouth? Check out The Lambcast, the official podcast of The Lamb, the largest association of movie blogs, which can be found at largeassmovieblogs.com. Si habla español. Hola y bienvenido a la <laughs> All right, let's do my case because it's very interesting. Um, so, okay, so right now I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I moved here about 10 years ago. I lived in Chicago like most of my life outside of Chicago. And uh, when I moved here, um, I, you know, as interested I was into true crime stuff, I was very curious about, you know, what stuff might have happened here now there's a lot of there's a couple of very famous stuff that happened in Indianapolis one of them is Sylvia Likens who is the most deranged thing I've ever heard in my life yeah it's really fucked up um, but I didn't want to do that one because I'm sure it's been done on other podcasts. I wanted to kind of do something that might have been, you know, like a like a like an underrated true crime murder, if you will. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to you about a guy named Herb Baumeister. All right, good old Herb here. So uh, let's see. He was uh, he was born in 1947. He was the oldest child of three. Uh, he has a, uh, younger brother and younger sister, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, oldest of four, my bad, um, they lived, uh, basically in Indianapolis and around Indianapolis, basically their entire lives, and, uh, he went, uh, he went to Indiana University in 1965, uh, but he dropped out, but then he returned in 1967, 
dropped out again, and then in 1972, he attended Butler University. Now, Butler University is literally 10 minutes away from my house. <laughs> so I, so everything I'm about to, the locations I'm about to mention, I know where all these places are. So, yeah, this is very local to me. I know where all these places are, and it's really crazy. Um, so he started, uh, apparently accordingly, his childhood was supposedly normal, but then when he started becoming, you know, an adolescent, he started showing some antisocial behavior. Um, some, uh, acquaintances recall that good old teenager Herb, uh, would be caught playing with dead animals and at one instant he urinated on the teacher's desk. So, that's, you know, one way to show your displeasure about a grade you got, I guess. <laughs> like, give me an F, I'm going to piss all over your desk. Um, when he was a teenager, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he, because it was the 60s, no one did anything about it. <laughs> that's the sad truth. No one did shit about that kind of stuff back in the 60s. Um... He then, you know, then he be, uh, he became an adult. Uh, he had a bunch of uh, different jobs. Uh, one of them, including, um, he worked at the DMV at one point, and uh, or sorry, BMV as they called it back then. Um, now he got these jobs through his father because his father was like a very wealthy businessman here in Indianapolis, and uh, he had a lot of you know. Um, pool and you know resources so basically anytime good old herb needed a job his dad his daddy would kick in and be like all right go work here just don't be weird and he would be weird and get fired <laughs> he pissed, yeah I, I imagine that's how i, I wonder that's how he quit like his jobs he just started peeing on their desks it's like <laughs> fuck you i quit piss like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, oh, we got another guy who peed again. Don't hire this guy. Um. So, um, yeah. So people thinking back to uh, her when he was in high school. He never really dated. Uh, it said people say they never saw him dating. Uh, he did try to fit in, but he couldn't find any group, you know, to fit in. Like with, he was always a loner. Um, but he was, you know very bookish he was you know a smart guy he did like his studies very seriously when he wasn't pissing on teachers desks but this is later in in uh in his life though um he became a copy boy at the indianapolis star which is a newspaper here um he worked at the dmv um yeah so then uh in 1971 he found a woman named julie and, ma and managed to maintain his relationship long enough to marry her. Um, he, uh, they were both supposedly very much in love. And again, because this was the 70s, she quit her job as a high school journalism instructor to be a housewife. <laughs> um, and their rationale was that you know Herb was making enough money at the BMV. And then they had three children, uh, Marie... Uh, Eric and Emily. Um, so eventually, uh, Herb would leave the BMV, and uh, Julie went back to work as a teacher for a little bit. And then, um, 
one day about in the 80s uh herb had an idea for a business and it was what if i can hire other people to piss on teachers desks no 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 that's not the idea uh he opened up a store he opened up a thrift store uh called save a lot uh now before you ask these stores no longer exist <laughs> sadly i kind of wish they did just so i can go to one but they, they all yeah um but he opened up a thrift store um and uh, 1988 and he worked in conjunction with the children's bureau of indianapolis to you know, kind of help a charity wise uh he opened up the store they sold mainly used clothing household goods and a lot of secondhand items um the store was like a hit uh, they earned $50,000 in this first year, so they opened up a second store. So now, Herb and Julie, they're successful business people. They have a business, and they're making a lot of money, and so they move uh, about 20 miles north of Indianapolis uh, in, a, in a district called Westfield. Um, now, how I, how I personally could describe this Westfield area is basically this is where all the Indianapolis football players live. That gives you an idea how fancy this neighborhood is. Um, it's like a very hoity-toity part of town. It's like mansions as far as the eye can see. You see like Porsches and Lamborghinis on the street and Hummers. and It's a crazy area coming from you know poor-ass Indianapolis driving north 20 miles. And it's like, holy shit, cars like that don't have duct tape holding up a light the... The, the lights <laughs> um, they bought a house or they bought a elegant Tudor style home uh, on a land that's called Fox Hollow Farms um, it had four bedrooms an indoor swimming pool and a stable and there is 18 and a half acres of just land and this is going to be very important to the story woods behind the house don't get ahead of me don't get ahead of me. <laughs> okay, so um, let's jump ahead here a little bit here. Um, so that's the setup. So Herb Baumeister is married to Julie. They got this fancy ass house, twenty miles north of Indianapolis, and there's woods behind the house. So there's that. Right around this time, a lot of uh gay men were going missing um and no one could figure out why now it's the late 80s gay people were not living the best life at this time like they were kind of shunned from society aids was running rapid people were misinformed highly about the whole AIDS thing and what causes aids and so a lot of people didn't give a shit about gay people unfortunately um and so Right, exactly. So, if a gay guy went missing, they didn't really do much about it. Um, and then, uh, according to one of the cops, uh, a person is not classified as missing until they're gone a full 24 hours. So, like, they can't just be gone, like, 12 hours and be like, well, well they're missing. Like, no, they got to be gone for one full day. Um, then, if uh, they're missing for 30 days, then it goes to the missing persons bureau for them to investigate. Um, so, uh, I don't know if I have a timeline of the victims here, but yeah, there were a lot of just gay guys that were missing in the late eighties. Now we're going into the early nineties here. Um, 
we are now going to go to a guy named Tony Harris. Um, so what's happening now is there's all these gay dudes that are just missing and no one knows what's up. So this dude named Tony, he was friends with one of the missing uh, gay men named Roger. Roger went missing. And uh, according to uh, some witnesses, they saw this Roger guy leave a gay bar with a man, but they didn't know who the man was. The bartender of this of this gay bar uh, said that the man identified himself as Brian Smart, and he left with Roger, but then Roger went missing. So Tony decided to go looking into this, and Tony's a gay man himself. And so uh, he went to the bar to kind of ask some questions, and uh, didn't get anywhere. And so while he's in the bar, uh, he meets this man who identifies himself as Brian Smart. So uh, this Brian Smart guy, he starts kind of talking up to Tony, and they, they're kind of hitting it off. And uh, Brian's like, hey, you want to come back to my place? And Tony, not really connecting the two right away, like he's kind of thinking this is kind of weird. Um, he, he, he says, yeah, sure. See, maybe, maybe this guy's in the up and up, or maybe this is the guy we're looking for. Um, so, uh, Tony got into, uh, Brian's Buick. Uh, it was a gray Buick with Ohio license plates. Now, remember, this story is taking place in, 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 in Indiana. Uh, and they went north on Meridian Street, uh, where it turns into US I-31, and I'm just, I'm just so giddy that stuff that I know is in a true crime story, because I know exactly where all these things are at, it's crazy. Um, so they went up to, uh, they went up to, uh, this place, and he, uh, um, Tony was taken to what looked like a large Tudor country mansion that was unlit, so he couldn't see a lot, um, and uh, they went, they entered the dark house through the side entrance, passing through a garage where Tony spotted several cars, among them an antique car. Um, he uh, Tony, when he entered the house, noticed that the furnitures was like put together all haphazardly. Uh, it was just like not. It was very bare. There was just like a couple of chairs, a couch, but like it didn't look like it was lived in. Uh, he followed this Brian Smart through a bunch of rooms until they came to a stairwell, and they went into a basement. And they went to the basement, which was uh, which was a little more furnished. It had a wet bar, and it was connected to the indoor pool. And then Tony saw the mannequins. There was a lot of mannequins around this room, staged in various poses, and and. And Brian, you know, waved us off saying, I get lonely down here. They give me company. Wow. <laughs> really fucked up. Right? Yeah. This is getting creepy. This is getting creepy, right? Yeah. How have I not heard of this before? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, again, Indianapolis, I don't know. Um, so at this point, Tony's freaked out. And he's refusing to take a drink that Brian offered. And... Um, but Brian plugs on and he says, we're going to party. And uh, he excuse, uh, this Brian guy excused himself briefly. Uh, when he returned, he seemed a lot looser, less timid, and more gabbier. Uh, Tony suspects that he might have did some drug, possibly cocaine, because this is like the late 80s, early 90s. I forget what. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, 
So uh, Brian convinced Tony to go for a swim uh, in the pool, and they both went in there naked. They did. Uh, they were in the pool naked. Uh, Brian talked about a number of subjects, and eventually his expression changed. Uh, Brian says, "I just learned this really neat trick. If you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really great. You get a really great rush." Uh, so, uh, this Brian dude is trying to convince Tony to do this, and he says, uh, you just pinch these two veins here, and it's such a buzz. You should see how someone looks when you're doing it to them. Their lips change color. That's how you can tell it's working. What? <laughs> how did you not catch on by the mannequins? <laughs> yeah, I would have been out with the mannequins. I was like, okay, dude, peace, I'm out. <laughs> So it is at this point that Tony now realizes this is possibly the guy that murdered Roger and who knows who else. Put it together finally. <laughs> so then Brian then insists that he wants Tony to do this to him, do the whole asphyxiation thing. And so uh, they get out of the pool, they go to a fold-out couch in the corner of the room, and uh, he directs Tony to slip a piece of hose around his throat. And as he did so, around, Brian... Around. His own throat or Brian's throat. This Brian guy's throat. Okay, Brian's throat. As he did so, he masturbated. So at this point, Tony was horrified, so numb, he just felt compelled to do whatever Brian wanted to do. Uh, it was clear, though, that Brian has been through this routine many times, and the only way to find out how these particular sex games ended, uh, Tony reasoned, was to just uh, take it all the way with this guy. So, uh, Tony uh, then placed Brian's hands on his on his neck now and lay down, awaiting the next step. Uh, Brian took the bait. He bent over and tried to choke him tighter. Uh, as, the, as everything was getting more intense, uh, the blood pressure mounted to his head, and Tony didn't want to wait. He pretended he was knocked out. Wow. So, uh, once uh, Brian thought you know Tony was knocked out, he eased up. Uh, Brian whispered his name, like, Tony, Tony. And then he started shaking him violently. When uh, Tony opened his eyes, Brian got mad. And he says, oh, you scared the shit out of me. You know you can die doing this. There's been accidents. And then, what a freak. <laughs> and then Tony decides to be brave. And he says, is that what happened to my friend Roger? Was he one of your accidents? Were there others? And this didn't get the result Tony was hoping for. He was hoping this would cause a confession out of him. However... He's not very bright, is he? <laughs> <laughs> Brian just stared at him, not understanding what's going on. And he was just lost in a daze of the situation and whatever substance he possibly was on. Um, Brian acted as if the whole thing was an amusing little game that he controlled. And uh, eventually, Brian's speech was slurred, and he just passed out. Like, just overcame with the substance he was on and whatever. So this gave Tony a chance to leave the house? No. He scouted the upstairs quarters of the house, because he didn't believe Brian's story that he was... Oh, so I forgot. Sorry, I mentioned this. So Brian claims he's the landscaper of this house, and he's watching the house for the actual owners. That's the whole story he, he gave Tony. So he went upstairs and he uh, saw, uh, you know, in the house, which was dark, a bunch of children's toys and women's clothing and that the place had been lived in for some time. Now, he just trying to find what Tony, or sorry, what Brian's real name was because it sounded like a fake name. He said Brian Smart 
And, you know, he figured, you know, the cops want to know this guy's real name. So since this Brian guy was still passed out, Tony went through uh, the guy's wallet um, and he didn't find anything. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. He went to look for the wallet, but then uh, Brian started awakening up. So he didn't get to look at the wallet or get the ID. So finally, after some convincing, uh, Tony made Brian drive him back home. Um, and much to, you know, his chagrin, he said, all right, fine. And he took him back, uh, to the, to the bar that they picked him up on. Cause he left his car there. Brian's last words to Tony was, Hey, you're a good sport. You really know how to play. Wow. <clears throat> <laughs> so, uh, Tony couldn't remember where the house was cause it was dark and it was late and he was nervous and scared or whatever. He just knew it was in the general direction of Westfield, Indiana. So uh, he contacted a private investigator um, who uh, takes on missing persons cases. And this investigator was also working with the police about all these missing gay guys. And uh, they were just trying to find where this house was. So that's a person's um, story about what, you know, what happened. So let's go back to this guy named... Baumeister, because it may or may not be the same guy. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, it should be noted that um, Julie later on would say that she and Herb was only sexually in, uh, uh, intimate only six times in the course of 25 years of marriage. Which, you know, that that might be weird, but that might be normal for a married couple. I don't know. You know, marriages are different. You know, like, you know, who's to say one married couple needs to have sex every day? Like, you know, I, who knows, right? You know, I don't. Yeah. No, it is. No, it is. It is weird. Um. So let's see. Uh. Herbs and Julie's marriage was kind of straining around the mid-1990s. Um, they had two stores that were just kind of occupying a lot of their daytime. They were hardly together. Um, but then they, they things started coming to a head uh, because of this whole sexless, supposedly loveless marriage. Um, everyone was kind of talking about how Julie and Herb were kind of acting toward each other. And at the end of 1994, the Save-A-Lot stores have taken a plunge. Uh, shoppers declined, and a lot of their bills soared. And uh, Julie, tired of everything, just decided to just get a divorce. Just like, fuck this, I just need a divorce. Uh, this did not make Herb happy, and he started venting on his employees. He demanded grueling work and unfair attention from them, acting as if he were some kind of king who deserved the peon's praise. He fired those who wouldn't comply to unjust treatment. Um, yet, um, he would disappear for hours on end, then return reeking of alcohol and just barking orders while drunk as a skunk. Um, the stores, uh, they were once tidy. They become... Uh, very messy and dirty. Everywhere you looked, there were mounds of garbage bag, and a former employee would say. It was like working on a garbage heap. 
so meanwhile, the cops are trying to find this Brian Smart guy. They're, they don't know anything about him. They don't know the house. And the whole thing with the mannequins is freaking everybody the fuck out. Because they're like, what, are going to blow to every house in Westfield, Indiana, and look for mannequins? Like, they don't know what to do. So, um, eventually, um, they find the Buick that this Brian Smart was driving um, outside of uh, another gay bar. And uh, the private investigator then ran the plates and found that it belonged to one, hey, Herb Baumeister. What? Wait. No way. This guy, he's married. He's got a wife. He's got kids. There's no way he's going around to gay bars picking men up. That doesn't make sense at all. No, not at all. Um, so with the plate numbers, they tracked uh, Herb to a house in Westfield. Uh, they went to Fox Hollow Farms and found out he had a wife and kids. Um, so now the the police were uh, closing in on, on Herb and he started freaking out because he's noticing a lot of police presence um, around him and he's going to these bars and then they eventually find out where he lives. <coughs> uh, let's see. Nah, you know what? I'm sad to say I read through this. They don't mention the mannequins again. No, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm very sorry. So, okay. I know. Yeah, they don't ever mention the mannequins again. I don't know what the hell was up with that. <laughs> I, I want to know myself, honestly. Like, like, well, okay, but he he owns a well. Here's the thing, though. He owns thrift stores, which has clothing's in it, so he could easily order mannequins and not cause suspicion. <laughs> What'd you say? Easy access to mannequins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I didn't want to know. Um, so that the now that they know where uh, Herb lived. Uh, uh, the private investigator and some of the cops, they went to Fox uh, Hallow Farms and talked to Julie and they wanted to uh, search the grounds. Uh, and Julie, at first, she didn't want to do this. She, she basically was like, no, I don't get permission. You don't have my permission. I just want you to leave. Want you to leave. Um, when Julie asked her, like, why are the cops interested in you? Uh, he says he's being falsely accused of theft and uh, whatever you do, do do not you know don't let the cops you know in or do whatever um eventually the cops took julie to a side because you know she's she was with herb this entire time this is happening um they pulled julie to the side and be like look we think your husband might be murdering these gay guys and we need to search oh, your, your search your grounds so um again she's all mad and frustrated at everything she's pissed off at herb pissed off at this happening she finally says fine Come investigate the grounds. You have my permission um, to do this because I'm just sick and tired of Herb and his bullshit and these fucking mannequins in this fucking basement. Get these. Get, fine. Come over here. So on June 23rd, 1996, uh, she calls her lawyer and tells them, tells the lawyer, get the cops, have them come over with a crew, and let's search these grounds. Uh, so, uh, Julie, with her lawyer on the side, they met with the law enforcement in her front yard, 
and let them through the house, searching the house, and they went into the wooded backyard. There, oh, I didn't tell this story. I, I skipped over this part. Um, two years prior to this, of so 1994, their son Eric was playing in the woods, and he spots a skeleton. He takes the skeleton to uh, to Herb, and he's like, I found the skeleton! And uh, Herb is like, oh, yeah, it's a uh, dissecting skeleton. It's not real. We just buried it for a reason. <laughs> <As you do. laughs> so he just kind of, you know, you know, played it off. So... Julie took the the cops to where Eric found the skeleton two years prior, and at a first glance, the yard looks completely normal. But then they just they just literally just start looking through low grass and patches of dirt, and they encountered a bone about a foot long, uh, charred from having been burned. They weren't sure if it was human at first, so they just kept looking around, and it became apparent that uh, all the pebbles and rocks that were strewn across the cover were not pebbles and rocks, but fragments of bone. Uh, according to the lawyer, the, the police were scooping up chipped, uh, chipped and broken bone one after another, uh, now looked down on his own feet. And he now realizes he, too, is standing on a bunch of fragmented and broken bones. So, um, so, they're, so now they're on this site, and they're digging up all these bodies. There's all these bodies buried. Um, at the time, they didn't know exactly how many because it was so many. So they're digging up. The next day, uh, they return... Uh, just keep digging through all the woods and the land on uh, Fox Hollow Farms. And uh, they just keep finding all kinds of bodies. Um, is da, it da. all skeletal? Or is it like, you know? It's kind of, it's, uh, let's see. They put, there's just like bones. There's just a bunch of bones. It's just like, uh, he just like tore all these people apart and buried them. Because there's bone fragments yeah. everywhere. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, oh, I'm sorry. The mannequins do make a return. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. While the dig continued, while the dig continued into the late hours, other policemen checked out the interior of the home. They found the mannequins, the wet bar, the pool, just as Tony described. However, they described they found something that Tony had not seen, a semi-hidden video camera that they suspected had been used to tape the strangulations. Oh, my God. So, now, you might be wondering, where's Herb during all this? Because it's just Julie and her lawyer at the house. Yeah. So, uh, every now and then, Herb would take their kids to see Herb's mother uh, at, a, um, at, a, at, a, at a lake house. Uh, now, I don't know where this lake is. It's Lake Wallasee, and I don't know where that is, honestly. So, it must be very far away. Um, so, Julie suddenly scared about the safety of her kids because she's with because they're with Herb obviously and they're trying to find a way to get the kids back without alarming Herb and harming the kids um he then uh, eventually gets wind of what's happening at home and he tries to hold on to his son but he uh uh but he, he, he didn't have a way to do it legally without, like, being kidnapping or whatever. And he's trying to... He's still feigning innocence. Like, he's still saying none of this is... He has nothing to do with any of this that's happening. Um, 
eventually the sh- the cops show up with uh proper papers to escort the kids home and herb not wanting to cause any trouble just gave the kids to the police and let them be because again he's trying to lay low he's not trying to you know be suspicious and he's denying all this is happening so um back at the house there's a bunch of compost piles where a lot of more bones are found and the killers seem to have burned the corpses under piles of leaves and garbage um so now they're asking, you know, how the hell could Herb have strangled and burned and buried these men without the family knowing? And the answer came in the fact that Herb spent a lot of time alone at, at, at home. His, uh, his wife and kids would go off to visit other family members and Herb would be like, I don't feel good. I think I'm going to stay home or I got to do something at work. I'm going to stay home or he'd find an excuse to stay home. And then while they were out of town, he would do all this shit. So he was alone a lot at this house. And the times that he was home alone match up to the times when all the victims disappeared. Oh, shit. Um, so there was a lot of volunteers to dig up the backyard. Uh, they got mainly 60 volunteers, mostly off-duty policemen and firemen. The first couple of days have produced 5,500 bones, teeth, and bone fragments. Oh. Which, according to the cops, made up about four bodies. Um, they would uh, they would soon learn that their search was far from over. Uh, neighbors from an adjacent farm acro- uh, crossed into the police t- and went to the police and told them that they found uh, more bones next door. They led the investigator to an area through uh, cut through with a drainage ditch that separated two properties. Here in the ditch were so many human uh, ribs, vertebrae, and spines that one of the officials was caught saying, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. The bones were so numerous and more intact that on the Baumeister land that they actually stuck up visibly from the mud. Uh, shovels drew up not only more bones, but with them cans of Miller Genuine Draft Beer, which was Herb's favorite drink, and... <laughs> Poor, poor Miller. They didn't ask for any of this. Man, that is terrible promotion and marketing. <laughs> God, they're, they're never going to recover from this. Uh, they also found handcuffs uh, that were probably bound to the victims in death. By the time the uh, they exhumed everything, uh, they found 140 bones that were estimated as those belonging to another seven men, which makes the body count up to 11. Wow. So it would be uh, this happened all in June. It would be it wouldn't be until September uh, before everyone was able to identify the bodies. Uh, so the four uh, that they were positively able to ID was Roger, the friend of Tony, uh, a guy named Stephen Hale. Um, Richard Hamilton and Manuel Resendez. Uh, to this day, the remains of others found at Fox Hollow Farms wait to be identified. But where was her Baumeister during all this? So after he gave up his kids to the police, uh, he left uh, his parents' house at Lake Wawasee and just started driving north. Uh, he just started freaking out. Uh, he was in a 1989 gray Buick and he just started driving north 
and he was spotted driving uh, on a highway on June 28th. Uh, the next day, he reaches a city called Port Huron, where he he phones uh, a friend of his, or no, sorry, his brother, asking for some money. Uh, the brother, not this is again, this is happening simultaneously with them kind of discovering the bodies and turning the kids in. So the the brother of uh, Herb was not notified what was happening. Uh, so he tells him, "Sure, I'll wire you some money." And uh, it wasn't until like later that he realized what the hell is going on. At this point, uh, Herb drives himself into Canada. Uh, he goes into Ontario. Uh, he arrives in Ontario on June 30th, where he spent several days there before driving east along Lake Huron uh, to Grand Bend, Ontario. Then, at Pinary Park on the evening of July 3rd, uh, Herb in his car, in the, in the driver's seat of his car, would put a gun to his head and pull the trigger. He left a note behind attributing his suicide to a failing business and a, uh, a terrible marriage, but he did not mention the skeletons, nor did he confess to the crime of the murders. Was he secretly gay or did he kill these guys? Like, was it just, you know, what was his M.O.? So, there's a theory that he was possibly a closeted homosexual. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, you know, gay people were not treated very well in the 80s. And uh, he probably just didn't know how to grapple with these feelings he was having. Right. So, you know, he was probably, like, more of ashamed of himself. You know, like, he was attracted to men. He would go through the trouble of picking up men. And then he would feel terrible for what he did. And then he would kill them. And, uh, and again, that's just a theory. Like, no one really knows because he never uh, admitted to this. He took the easy way out. Yeah, that sucked. <laughs> um, in, in his uh, suicide note, it was a three-page suicide note. He explained that he was going to go eat a peanut butter sandwich, his favorite snack, and then go to sleep. Uh, the evening before he died, a Canadian trooper stopped and asked him why he was sleeping in a car. He told him that he was just a, tur a tourist passing by and he was just getting a rest. At the time, the Canadian trooper noticed some luggage and what looked like a pile of VHS tapes in his back seat. Were those the videotapes of the murders he committed in the pool at Fox Hollow Farms? We will never know because after Herb died, there were no signs of the tapes on him or in the car. He most likely tossed them into a lake before he killed himself. Did he have, like, a certain type of victim, or is it just he preyed on gay guys because they were vulnerable and he was a closeted homosexual? I think they were just gay men. Yeah, I so, the, they also, yeah, yeah, like young gay men, it looks like. Yeah, they were all, like, what, I say 20s and 30s. Uh, Roger was 34, Stephen was 26, Richard was 20, and Manuel was 31. Those were the ones that were identified, even. And Tony, I think he said he was like in his twenty, like maybe late twenties, early thirties as well. So, but the story, the story does not end there, though. So, uh, along uh, Interstate seventy uh, between Indiana and Ohio, um, the cops realized there were also a bunch of disappearance of gay men. Um, happening along there 
and that their bodies were dumped alongside Interstate uh, Interstate 70 uh, in the Ohio side. Um, they didn't have a, a, a murder suspect for those cases, so they called it the I-70 murders. It wasn't until later, after they found all the bodies at Fox Hollow Farms, that they put the two cases together uh, and realized that all the murders that happened in Ohio matched up to all the times Herb went to Ohio for supposedly business-related things. Uh, they would show uh, Herb's pictures to some witnesses um, that they thought, you know, was the I-70 strangler, and they identified him perfectly clear, saying that is the man that we saw leaving with a gay guy in a bar in Ohio, and then their friend went missing. So it's not 100% certain if he did, in fact, kill the people along I-70, but they're about 90% sure that it was him. Have they identified all of them? No, they did not. There's still there's still some people that are not identified, um, but it's um, there's you know they're still trying to find ways to identify him because they they don't want to match up the people that went missing along with the people who got murdered because people go missing. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they got, got murdered, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. So, you know, it doesn't mean that the, all the gay guys who went missing were also the ones who got killed. It's a possibility, but it's not for sure. you got to wonder if any of them are on websites like the Charlie Project or Namus, where it's like somebody who's been missing for like 30 years and they never found out. You know, you can, yeah. there's so many of those profiles and you wonder, it's like, oh, did any of these people end up in any of these, you know cases where there's like a serial killer and unidentified body yeah yeah it's hard to say because you know you never know so that's it that's the whole that's the whole story that's the whole interesting part of it uh if you do want to know more there was a book um about this called where the bodies were uh that goes into extreme detail about this whole case there was a uh an episode of investigative reports uh, titled The Secret Life of a Serial Killer in 1997. Um, the, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there you can watch. So, uh, yeah. That, uh, that definitely, you know. I'd never heard of that. That was really creepy. Right? right? That, was, that, that was fucked up. <laughs> so, yeah. Good old Indianapolis. <laughs> I know where all these places are. Now, I do have a follow-up to... Uh, the Fox Hollow Farms area. So that happened in 1996. So back in uh, May of this year, uh, the land that it was on went up for sale. Now, I'm not making this up. The owner, the current owners, because they're still trying to sell this land. I swear to God, the owners of the of the Fox Hollow Farms. Are called Vicky and Rob Graves. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I am not even kidding. That is on this news report about this <laughs> property being on sale. So, so it's it's, like, it's this up for sale. They haven't gotten anyone to buy it yet. No, as far as I know, it's still up for sale. Did you um, ever do that? Lives in a place that you knew something crazy happened in. Um. I could, yeah, because I'm not, I'm not a strong believer in ghosts. Like I don't worry about getting haunted or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't so, worry about ghosts. It's just more of like 
the idea of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, uh, in that same news article I mentioned, um, people who have stayed at the house said they would hear strange noises, get unsettling feelings, and see apparitions. Unsettling so. feelings. That's like putting it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> Being in a place like that. Now, my only question is, does the house come with the mannequins? Because that's going to be yeah, a deal yeah, breaker. What happened to the mannequins? What would, what would fate be that? So I, I, that's that's all I want to know. So <laughs> that was a good one. I liked that. It was very like I never heard of that. Yeah, that Indianapolis has some interesting stories. Um, so that's just one of them. So all right. So that said, I think that's gonna do it for us. That's uh, that's our uh, true crime episode of whatever. Right. Um, if this is your first time listening to the show, I normally don't do this format. This was just a special episode I wanted to do. I wanted to break into the true crime podcast formula and to see if I can get my name out there. Why not? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fun. Thank you for having me on. Mary, thank you so much for coming on. You were very awesome. Uh, I loved hearing about John Benet Ramsey. I heard some stuff I haven't heard before. Um, it was awesome hearing that. And uh, thank you for listening to my story. And oh, yeah. oh, that was I, yeah. I want to thank everyone out there listening to for listening. Um, you can find whatever on any podcast, uh, you know, stations, Spotify, Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from. That's where you can find me at. Uh, check out my Facebook page, facebook.com slash whatever with Jason Soto. Uh, I post funny memes on there and other interesting stuff on there. So definitely check that out. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at whatever J Soto, uh, and uh, I will be back next week uh, with a new episode. Um, I have my friend Chris on, and we are gonna do our Christmas special. We're gonna talk about all kinds of Christmas shit. So stay tuned for that. Um, thank you all very much for listening, and we'll see you later.